The Charles Adler Show starts now. Every now and then you hear me say something like, I never, ever thought I would publicly say this in Canada. So this is one of those occasions. I never, ever thought that I would publicly say that a parliamentary official invited an old Nazi to the people's house. I never used the word Nazi casually. That is because of my family's background. I'm the child of Holocaust survivors. An old Nazi who served during World War II in Ukraine in a specific regiment, which we'll discuss in just a few moments, was mistakenly, I repeat, mistakenly invited to an event which was to honor a person who is considered right now one of the champions of democracy anywhere in the world that happens to be a man by the name of Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. The Russian chief propagandist, and that would be the president of that country, Vladimir Putin. Authoritarians always tell big lies. That's part of the way they behave. And the biggest lie that he tells is that the reason he's got Russian forces in Ukraine is to liberate Ukraine from Nazi rule. So this was a victory, among other things. This was a victory. This black eye for Canada was a victory for Vladimir Putin and for authoritarianism around the world. David Pugliese is a journalist with many years of experience working for the Ottawa Citizen and Post Media. He has uh, talked to me from time to time over the years about various subjects, but there's one subject that we're going to get into that has gotten him into some uh, hot water with certain people in this country who I will simply call extremists. David Pugliese, thank you so much. Welcome to the Charles Adler Show, the podcast. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you. David, I hope I'm not overstating when I say that you've gotten into some uh, some hot water because of uh, extremists in this country who, who don't like what you're writing about. Yeah, I've actually covered this type of subject for, uh, well, for 10 years now, um, before that. So uh, there are, you know, various uh, things said about me and uh, and various threats and such. So, But that's just journalism in 2023. So you just get used to it and you just keep chugging along. So uh, this person, I'm going to deliberately uh, omit his name because I don't want to give him any more due. Um, this this person is not alone. This person is among many in this country who served Hitler's final solution, served that particular cause in various countries of Eastern Europe and, of course, Germany. And so the first question we need to ask, uh, beyond what happened with the, this, this, let's call it, bureaucratic error that gave Canada a black eye, you know, beyond that, the, the big picture question, this was, after all, a Canadian citizen we're talking about, this, this old Nazi. And I need to ask David Pugliese, someone who's done more research on this than most, why is an old Nazi among many old Nazis, why are they in Canada? Why are they Canadian citizens? Why are they here? After uh, World War II, um, there is a push uh, among some communities in Canada to to get uh, some of these former uh, uh, Nazi uh, soldiers, uh, Waffen-SS uh, individuals, into the country. Um, so what happened was this gentleman that we're talking about, uh, this uh, individual, was with the 14th Waffen-SS Galicia. Uh, so Canada let in about 2,000 of these individuals into the country. 
Um, there's a lot of pressure from some in the Ukrainian community at the time to to let these individuals in because, uh, uh, you know, the idea was, uh, oh, well, they're anti-communist. Um, as well, though, there were uh, there was pushback from others in the Ukrainian uh, community in Canada who said, no, these individuals are war criminals. So help help me under, understand, um, because I'm making the assumption many people who are listening don't really know very much about the Cold War. Why would the term anti-communist, despite, despite what someone has done, uh, serving in, in a regiment uh, dedicated to the murder of, of Jewish civilians and others, um, why would the fact that they are anti-communist give them a green light into Canada? Mm -hmm. Well, during the Second World War, the uh, Soviet Union uh, was uh, allied with Canada, the United States, uh, and the Allied powers. They fought with uh, with our our side. Um, you know, as Canadian troops were landing at D-Day, uh, American troops landing at D-Day, pushing towards Germany. Uh, uh, Russian troops, Soviet troops were were pushing towards Berlin. But after the war, quickly after the war, uh, Cold War emerges, and uh, anyone who is uh, was anti-communist uh, gets a new life, uh, so to speak, and uh, is looked upon as, um, as you know in a positive manner. Now, so during the during the war, the Nazis recruited a lot of uh, individuals from the their occupied territories and one of the things that they pushed was uh, they're fighting communism they're fighting the jewish uh inspired communist organization and if you take a look at the recruiting poster for the uh, 14th waffen ss which this individual joined um there's a, a caricature of a uh, octopus with a hook nose and a star of David on it. And you've got a Waffen SS man with a sword ready to chop its head off. So they were, they were pushing this whole thing and, and they were, uh, they were getting individuals who were, uh, of that, uh, of that mindset. And I, I suppose we should add here that when it came to Nazi propaganda, and it doesn't matter whether you were viewing it in, in, in Ukraine or the country I was born in, uh, Hungary or, of course, Germany, uh, Poland, and elsewhere. If you're viewing Nazi propaganda, very often the Jew was always portrayed as some sort of animal because it was important for Nazis to portray the Jews as subhuman. So very often uh, they would be vermin, they would be rats. In this case, they would be an octopus, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't be human. And uh, that made it easier in terms of uh, the impact of propaganda. That made it easier for many people to sign off on the idea of literally literally eliminating uh, the Jewish population in their midst. It needs to be said that half of European Jewry, 50% of Jews living in Europe, were eliminated in what Hitler called his final solution, of which this old man was part of. I wonder, David, if you could indulge us in a, a quick primer on the difference between being a German soldier or a Ukrainian soldier or a member of the Waffen SS. What what is the difference between a regular forces member and a Waffen SS member, which is what we're talking about here? Well, the German army, the Wehrmacht, uh, fought on the battlefield. Now, uh, it has to be said that the, the, the units of the Wehrmacht uh, also took part in uh, atrocities. However, uh, 
the Waffen-SS, the SS was the main Nazi organization uh, that organized the final solution, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, uh, the murder of six million Jews and, and other individuals. Um, and the Waffen-SS was the fighting unit of, of the SS. Now, they also took part in, um, in uh, massacres, atrocities. They, uh, they were involved in hunting Jews down, uh, Jewish civilians who had escaped uh, into the forest, that type of thing. Why, uh, why was a Waffen-SS, and I think a lot of people have been confused in the last few days because they associate uh, Nazism with Germany. They don't understand why a Ukrainian would be a member of what, what is perceived to be some sort of German regiment. So I wonder if you could just uh, explain to us why uh, some people in Eastern European countries, including Ukraine, would actually be involved in a German operation, a German mission. What, what's that about? So there's a couple of things at play. Um, when the Nazis invaded Eastern Europe, uh, they were able to, to murder large numbers of Jews, basically because they had support of Eastern European collaborators. So the Third Reich, the Einsgruppen uh, uh, organizations that did the killing, they're very small when it comes to numbers. And so they relied on Ukrainians, Latvians, Estonians, Hungarians to to uh, uh, police up Jewish civilians and then take them to their death in, in killing fields and such. In 1943, as the Third Reich was, was starting to collapse, the Germans were starting to lose the war. So Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, he needed more manpower. And he turned to these uh, uh, occupied territories uh, and he put out the call for uh, for individuals who wanted to serve in units of the SS. So a French SS unit was was developed, uh, Latvian SS, Estonian SS, and Ukrainian SS. These were volunteer organizations in the beginning. So when Himmler put out the call for Ukrainian SS, he received 80,000 individuals who wanted to serve voluntarily. Uh, they selected around 10,000, 12,000, and put them into battle. Um, and then later on, they took uh, they had volunteer they had uh, uh, conscripts. But uh, the initial the initial group that went into battle were volunteers for the Third Reich. Do we know that the individual who was in the House of Commons gallery volunteered for the Waffen SS? Yes, he's he's confirmed that he volunteered. Um, he hasn't hidden. He never hid his background. There's a a website honoring 14th Waffen SS, um, and there's photos of him in his Nazi uniform uh, that he provided them. Um, he said that his time in the SS was uh, was a great time, um, and uh, yeah, so he is a volunteer and he has acknowledged that. So help us understand something else here. Uh, these days, we keep hearing about Ukrainians desperately wanting to be independent of of Russia. We hear about the sacredness of Ukrainian independence. Uh, with tens of thousands of Ukrainians volunteering to be part of a, a German mission, as it were, was Ukrainian independence not as important to many Ukrainians in the 40s, not as important as it is now? Yeah, I mean, what, what happened is nationalistic groups volunteered to help the Third Reich, uh, to help Hitler, because they thought eventually they might get some independence. And there's a hatred of Stalin, there's a hatred of the Russians. 
However, uh, what's missed here, you have a small number of Ukrainian nationalists fighting for the SS, for the Nazis, but you also had 4.6 million Ukrainians fighting for uh, fighting in the Soviet uh, army, the Red Army. So, you know, there is a, a big, uh, you know, difference there. So the, the supporters of the Third Reich, of Hitler's ideals, uh, were very small uh, in Ukraine. So it's fair to say that the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians who were fighting men, and for the most part they were men, Mm-hmm. Uh, for the most part, we're, vo- we're, we're fighting with the allies, fighting with, with us, as it were. And I, is, that, is that the case? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, and one of the, thing, one of the points that I've made is um, if you want to, in Parliament, uh, honor a Ukrainian war veteran, there were 40,000 Ukrainian Canadians who fought in the Canadian Army, Air Force, and Navy. Why not take one of those individuals and and put them in the gallery for two standing ovations, as opposed to a Waffen SS member. This is something that uh, over the many years that I've done the broadcasting, especially in Winnipeg with a large Ukrainian population, uh, it's always been uh, something that I, I've needed to be very, very surgical about because the last thing any Ukrainian Canadian living in Winnipeg or elsewhere wants to hear is the thought that his ancestors were fighting on the side of the Nazis. A small percentage were, but overwhelmingly, Ukrainians were supporting the Soviet Union. They were part of the Soviet Union, but in supporting the Soviet Union during World War II, they were supporting the Allied effort. They were supporting the idea of destroying Nazism, not building it up, not supporting it. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the pushbacks or the disinformation you get from some of these Ukrainian nationalists is when you bring up these these matters, you're smearing uh, Ukraine, you're smearing Ukrainian Canadians. But that's not the case. There are a lot of brave Ukrainian uh, Canadian men and women who fought against the Nazis. And so, you know, it's not a it's not a black and white situation. Um, the question is, why would you honor? Nazis. Now, more with Charles Adler. The other issue about all of this is the the, the Jewish question, as it were. Um, Many Ukrainian Nazis, and uh, this 98-year-old, I'm sure, was one of them, believe that the Soviet Union in and of itself was a Jewish conspiracy. Difficult to understand how that can be the case when Joseph Stalin himself murdered as many Jews as he did. Help us with that, would you? Yeah, so the Soviets were anti-Semitic. Stalin was anti-Semitic. Uh, uh, large numbers of Jewish people were, were, were killed uh, by, uh, by Stalin and his various purges. Um, part of this comes to the, the fact that there were members, or there were Jews who were members of Stalin's secret police. Um, and so that's focused on by by the Nazis. There were there are members of the Jewish community who were were part of Stalin's government uh, or his officials, and so that was focused on by the Nazis to you know to push this narrative. What happened to Jews in uh, Stalin's uh, government after World War II? Is that is that something worth mentioning here, David? Yeah, I mean, that, there is a lot of anti-Semitism in uh, in the uh, in the Soviet army. I mean, if you take a look at uh, 
you know, there was a movie a while ago called Defiance about uh, Jewish partisans during the, the Second World War. And when they tried to join up with the Soviet forces, they, they faced a lot of anti-Semitism as well. So, you know, there's there's obviously anti-Semitism on both sides. Um, but this whole idea that, uh, you know, communism is this Jewish controlled uh, uh, cabal, uh, it's just it's right out of the, the Nazi playbook. Just uh, to be fully transparent here, my father uh, served in a uh, prisoner of war camp. Uh, he was there for three years. That particular camp was in Siberia, and it would astonish uh, my father uh, to ever hear anyone publicly talk about how the communists were uh, were Jewish friendly or that Stalin's regime was Jewish friendly because my father, uh, a Jew, certainly never experienced uh, friendliness in that uh, in that Siberian uh, camp that, that he was in for three years. Um, David, let's move on to the Canadian situation because people are still asking themselves, how could this happen? What actually did happen and, and who was responsible for it? Well, so what happened was this individual was, was uh, brought into the House of Commons. Um, he was introduced by the Speaker of the House, uh, Mr. Rhoda. Uh, he was honored as a hero, a Canadian hero and a Ukrainian hero. And then Rhoda said he fought um, against the Russians during World War II. Well, that's your clue um, that he wasn't on the Allied side. So, <laughs> you know, at that point, they should have realized. Um, but instead, uh, he was given uh, uh, two standing ovations. And um, and then, you know, uh, what happened next was uh, Jewish groups realized what was going on. Um, I, uh, a Ukrainian uh, professor at the University of Ottawa found the website with uh, the individual's photos in, uh, in Nazi uniforms. Um, a Jewish newspaper called The Forward in the United States wrote the first story. And then it started to uh, it started to uh, to go from there. So. Uh, you know, three Jewish groups uh, ha had uh, have issued uh, demands for an apology. The Polish government has demanded an apology uh, because the 14th Waffen SS was implicated in massacres of Polish uh, women and children during the Second World War. So, David, uh, you've spent a great deal of your life in Ottawa as an Ottawa citizen uh, reporter. I, I just don't understand. Um, Beyond the fact that Anthony Rhoda, the, the Speaker of the House, may not be fully aware of who was on whose side in, in World War II, and beyond the fact that he his office uh, missed the obvious, uh, isn't there a security vetting that the Prime Minister's office or, or, or some other government agency is, is involved in uh, to make sure that we don't end up with an old Nazi in the gallery? You would think, if you were going to uh, put an individual in the House of Commons as a guest of honour, and then point him out, uh, and you have all the members of parliament, uh, you know, clapping for him. Um, right near him is Chief of the Defense Staff, uh, General Wayne Eyre, who would have known who was on Canada's side during World War II. You would think that there would be some kind of uh, vetting process. How do you, how does an individual like that just emerge? And um, I mean, well, we'll see if, if any of this comes out, what what betting there was, I'm sure I'm sure journalists are going to be putting in access to information requests to, to find out what happened. Uh, but it's going to take a while. 
So I mean, I, I get the fact that the House of uh, the House of Commons speakers screwed up and uh, invited uh, someone that he shouldn't have invited. I understand that, but I just think that there must be there must be something uh, there must be some process uh, to decide ultimately, regardless of who's invited. Ultimately, uh, what is uh, making Parliament more secure, or less secure? But Parliament Hill, Parliament, the House of Commons, especially because of what happened. Uh, a couple of years ago where someone nearly got away with murdering a, a number of members of parliament, uh, the House of Commons is supposed to be one of the most secure areas in Canada. Sure. And when I was a member of the, the House of Commons press gallery, uh, RCMP did a security check on me when uh, when I, uh, you know, uh, covered uh, Prime Minister Harper's uh, trip to, to NATO, uh, to the NATO summit. There was background checks done on me uh, into my background. Uh, by the police. So uh, I just find it very strange that this individual uh, was able to enter the House of Commons without any type of uh, background check. It just it just does not make sense. Um, the other issue is, did someone say, uh, you know, okay, you fought during Second World War, can you tell me a little bit about your military service? Because the Speaker of the House thanked him for his military service. So you'd think, uh, okay, what unit did you fight with? Was it the Princess Patricia's? Was it, uh, you know, the Royal 22nd? Uh, These are all basic questions. It just doesn't ring right that there wasn't some kind of uh, of background or or, or knowledge there. So you mentioned earlier, uh, David, that uh, we had uh, thousands of people who had uh, served Hitler's forces in various Eastern European countries allowed into Canada. And uh, one of the, I suppose, the rationales uh, was that uh, they, they had fought, uh, they had fought uh, communism. All right. Um, is Canada an easy mark? Uh, was Canada a soft target uh, for these uh, people who had fought with the Nazis? Or, or did many other Western countries allow them in just as we did? Well, England allowed uh, allowed them in. The United States allowed them in. There's documents in the uh, in the British uh, government's archives where the British government knew that uh, the 14th Waffen SS may contain war criminals, um, but they wanted to dump them onto Canada. So um, they were able to do that for some of them. Um, uh, the United Kingdom went through its own scandals in the uh, in the 1980s as well, where uh, BBC or, or different uh, uh, British uh, media outlets uh, tracked down Waffen SS um, uh, soldiers living in the United Kingdom. So the Simon Wiesenthal Center is one of the first uh, to have uh, reacted to this uh, horrible situation in Canada this week. Can you tell us a little bit about the center? About uh, Simon Wiesenthal and, and, and what that is about. So he was a, a famous uh, Nazi hunter. Uh, he had uh, been in a concentration camp and members of his family were murdered. Uh, so after the war, he made it his, uh, his mission to uh, start hunting down some of these individuals, uh, exposing them. And uh, when he passed on, uh, you know, the organization still continues to this day. So, David, you've been writing about military matters since uh, 1982. Um, have you ever asked a Canadian official the, the question, if we're aware of someone who is a member of the Waffen-SS, um, why doesn't our government initiate extradition uh, proceedings 
to get them into some other country where crimes were committed so that country, like Poland in the case of this particular individual, so that some country can, can, can put them on trial. Because surely to goodness, we believe that justice, regardless of how old someone is, justice should be brought to bear here. And if, if our country uh, can't be doing it, at least we can be enabling justice rather than covering it up. Yeah, Canada's uh, come into a lot of criticism for, um, for its poor record in hunting down Nazis, um, as well as uh, extraditing them to other countries. Um, and so what usually happens is these individuals just run out the clock, uh, just make a legal, uh, you know, legal uh, uh, representation after legal representation, and they're able to delay uh, this. I mean, this happened in the case of, a, of an individual in uh, the Waterloo area, uh, he eventually passed on, uh, but they were trying to boot him from the country. And he was, a, you know, he said, oh, I didn't see anything. He was a translator for an Einsatz group and uh, death squad. You know, he said he was a translator slash mechanic. Uh, you know, so there's always there's always some kind of excuse. And there wasn't a lot of push um, among uh, Canadian government officials after the war. People just wanted to uh, move on with their lives. And so these individuals have been able to live amongst us without any repercussions. I think uh, it's incumbent upon us to mention that the uh, the death camps, uh, Auschwitz and others, were run uh, by, by the SS, uh, the same organization that this individual was a, a member of. Mm-hmm. So, David, over the years, you've heard many rationales for many evils. And one of the rationales that's often uh, given for people like this is that they had no choice. Do we have firm evidence that people who are members of the SS itself, I'm not talking about uh, regulars with, with, with forces that were allied with Germany, I'm not talking about regular soldiers here, but do we have evidence, hard evidence, that people who are members of the SS enthusiastic, enthusiastically participated, volunteered, wanted to be doing what they were doing, wanted to participate in what are known around the world as war crimes? These individuals in this unit at the beginning um, were volunteers, and this individual uh, acknowledges he was a volunteer. Um, you know, people are saying, oh, he was a young guy, he wouldn't have had a choice, uh, he wouldn't have known. It, it, first of all, it was well known in Ukraine and the Eastern uh, nation, Eastern European nations, that the, that the final solution was happening. They just didn't know the, the extent of the killing. Uh, Ukrainians saw their Jewish neighbors being marched away to to be executed. Uh, the same in Latvia, the same in Estonia. This is well documented. So uh, he volunteered uh, to support Adolf Hitler. He took an oath uh, as part of as part of joining the Waffen SS. He took an oath to Adolf Hitler. So. Uh, not a lot of wiggle room in there. Um, you know, I guess you could say, and then other Ukrainians went to fight for the Red Army. Now, a lot of those were conscripted as, you know, they didn't have a choice, but they still fought for the Red Army. So, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to reconcile. And just to be clear, the Red Army, in the case of World War II, the Red Army uh, was on our side. We were on the same side. And uh, we were had many ideological differences as, as countries, but uh, there was uh, one thing that we all had in common, and that was the, the defeat of fascism, the, the defeat of, of Hitler. Uh, David, uh, 
what kind of a political propaganda victory is this week in Canada? What kind of a victory is it for Vladimir Putin? It, uh, it was served up as on a platter for Putin. It is a propaganda win of enormous proportions. Um, you know, he is now, uh, Russia is now using this to say, see, I told you so. Uh, we had to, you know, we had to invade Ukraine because it's, it's populated with Nazis. And uh, this gift has been provided to Putin. The issue is, it's interesting to see uh, Prime Minister Trudeau say, well, we have to be, you know, cognizant of Russian disinformation. But his government served this up on a platter. Um, he shot himself, they shot him, they shot themselves in the foot. David, I wonder, before we depart, if you could help us understand why you, David Pugliese, have been so interested in this subject of, of SS and, and other uh, miscreants. Uh, alleged war criminals being in Canada. You've been vitally interested in this, writing about this, and taking some some hits from extremists about this uh, for more than a decade now. What what brought you to this? Well, I've just been, uh, it, it's an area of interest, uh, military interest in history. I mean, the more that, uh, uh, that I understand it. Um, I, I guess what I'm seeing now, and it, it, it is a terrible thing that's happening, as our war battle, my family fought against the Germans. My uncle, you know, fought his way into Germany. My, uh, you know, my uh, my other uncle uh, was in Lancaster bombers over Berlin, and they're they're all passed on now. But what's happening is incredible. It is a distortion of history, where um, members of the SS are now heralded as heroes in some of these Eastern European countries there are parades to honor them. And so I think we owe it to our veteran community and to Holocaust survivors. Holocaust survivors are dying off by the day. Our veterans are dying off by the day. And if we don't point out the wrong aspect of this, I think we're failing them. David Pugliese, thank you very much uh, for the great work that you've done. Um, it's a service to journalism. It's a service to Canada. It's a service to freedom. I want to thank you for everything that you've done. And I treasure our association. Thank you very much for doing this. Great. Thanks for having me. Ottawa citizen journalist, David Pugliese, who happens to be a defense specialist and has been writing about defense matters for decades. I'm Charles Adler. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press and every day at criermedia.co.